Hello, welcome to a special festive episode of the Science for Policy podcast. I'm Toby. Okay, here's the deal. Since our very first episode, we have welcomed a broad range of people on this show, people who give science advice, people who support it, people who put it to use, and people who study and think about it. Now, we've tried our best to cover different areas of science and different policymaking environments. And uh, in 2021, we'll be branching out even further, and I'm excited about the plans we have in store there too. But despite all this, I'm aware that there's been one big limitation. Every science advisor I've spoken to so far has been conspicuously, how to put this, conspicuously terrestrial, earthbound, mundane even. So today in this one-off Christmas episode, I want to put that right. So... Ladies and gentlemen, and sentient life forms from across the galaxy, I present to you the science advisor, literally to the stars, Dr. Erin McDonald. Erin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. That's a great introduction. <laughs> well, I managed to avoid almost entirely saying what you do. So, Erin, uh, what's your job? Yeah, so uh, so I have a PhD in astrophysics, but I currently live and work in Los Angeles advising for the Star Trek franchise. Your Star Trek science advisor. I am the science advisor for all of Star Trek, which is a amazing dream job. I don't quite know where to go from here. <laughs> well, yeah, how unlucky to land your dream job so early in your career. I mean, before we get too deep into this, and believe me, I do want to go deep into this, but first let me just ask you, how on earth did you end up with this job? Like, what's the career plan or life path that leads someone to this? It's a it's a, a long and winding one. <laughs> I um, started out in academia. I did my PhD at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, studying gravitational waves with the LIGO collaboration. Stayed in for a little while, did a postdoc as well at uh, Cardiff University, and then decided that the professor career track wasn't necessarily for me. So I um, moved back to the United States. I started teaching at local community colleges, at science museums, and giving talks at pop culture conventions because I'm a big sci-fi nerd and I had started going to these when I was in graduate school and um, realizing that there was a great audience and a great opportunity to teach the science behind science fiction. So I started putting some talks together and going to these, you know, things like called Dragon Con or Awesome Con or Comic Con, any of those that people have heard of. And I will talk about the physics behind warp drive or things like that, you know, video game franchises, space movies, anything like that. And it was great. There was a great audience for that. So that was really a big passion of mine. Um, Concurrently, though, that's what I was doing in my spare time. I also started working as an aerospace engineer, and I was advising um, the military in the space industry. And so I had kind of pivoted into this advisor role from a more technical standpoint as well as continuing to do all this education. From the conventions, that's when I started to meet creatives, I started to meet actors, writers, showrunners, producers, and started to get asked to help them consult on their projects. Once I moved out to Los Angeles, I was working out of LA Air Force Base, and I was also um, starting to meet people who were involved in Star Trek. And then they asked me to come along and help with uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 3. And then while I was working in that, we realized this was a great opportunity to bring me on and 
have me consult and be available to all of the shows which are currently in development, which is, I think, six shows right now. <laughs> and they're and all in different stages and my role is different in all of them. But yeah, I mean, it's been about a decade of kind of hopping from career to, to career and figuring out what works best for me. And, and now I've got this dream job. Okay, well, it sounds amazing. It also sounds like you could look back with hindsight and tell yourself yeah this is always the plan right go to <laughs> conventions talk to the right people and so on um but you're saying in fact it didn't start out that way you just kind of made your way in bit by bit well you know i've always been a fan of the entertainment industry and you know since i was a kid that was something that i wanted to work in and but i also had a passion for science and so kind of being the pragmatic 18 year old i was like well i'll go get a science degree and i'll kind of see where it goes from there but keeping in the back of my mind that i do love the entertainment industry and i love film production and um, any opportunity then that I saw to kind of shoehorn my way in. I mean, yeah, it wasn't like I fell into it, but it certainly positioned myself in a way that it made that transition easy. So yeah, it's a little bit of effort, but. <laughs> I mean, it may be a bit much to ask whether you chose your original scientific discipline with this end goal in mind, but um, do you think there was any interaction between, as you say, your lifelong fondness for space shows like star trek and the fact that you ended up with a doctorate in gravitational astrophysics did it that <laughs> yeah that is a little bit more random actually uh i was actually working as a radio astronomer when i was an undergraduate i was at the university of colorado boulder which has a lot of um, astronomy research so as an undergraduate i had the privilege of doing my own research projects and it was in radio astronomy and when it came to searching for postgraduate programs to get into I actually found a professor at Glasgow who was a radio astronomer, um, Professor Graham Wohn. And I had reached out to him and he wrote back and said, I've actually pivoted my career into gravitational waves, but we could really use more people with a background in radio astronomy here because we're trying to kind of marry those two fields to try to find gravitational waves from radio sources in, in astronomy. So um, that was almost completely random coincidence. I mean, we got on great. My background was perfect for it. And uh and then once I was actually in the weeds with doing my doctorate in gravitational waves, that's when my brain was procrastinating, putting off writing my thesis and realizing um, while I was watching multitudes of Star Trek that now I have the tools to calculate warp drive. <laughs> and uh, so that kind of, that was a little bit more of a uh, distraction more than anything, but it was a happy coincidence. <laughs> Right. And now you get to do that kind of thing for a living. So can you say a bit about what the job is like being this very particular kind of science advisor? Yeah, it's, you know, for most shows, it's I will just get sent um, scripts in their near final state, kind of when they're sent out to the production company for review and small edits. And, you know, they do things like check that the timelines are all consistent, that there's all the canon is working. And then I'm one of those people that it gets sent to. And then I will read the script, make sure that the science that they're trying to describe makes sense, that it's described well, and any sort of what we, I mean, I personally love to call techno babble, <laughs> this, mm -hmm. you know, technical language that they throw, throw out and uh, makes sense. And at the very least, if it just needs a little tweaks here and there. And sometimes, I mean, I'll get really heavy science scripts and I will send back pages and pages of notes 
But a lot of it isn't really fundamental. It's more of just like, no, I would say that they fall into it instead of fall onto it, just from a scientific standpoint. So so that's sort of the base job. But then as I've been working with some of these writers and showrunners for a period of time, and we have have an established working relationship, they'll bring me in sometimes more early on in the creative process where they'll say, oh, we need a space disaster to happen. Can you help us figure out what that should be? Or we want to do a cool maneuver. We need to come up with some neat space things that we can do or some fun Easter eggs to throw in. So then I get to be a little bit more involved in the creative process. Right. So you're you're shaping the narrative a bit there yeah. rather than just kind of reviewing the stuff they're already committed to. And it's funny because I feel like um, the previous, once I got this job, I started kind of reflecting on my own career and <laughs> where I want to take it because I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is it. <laughs> I don't know what else to do now. Retire, and, right? <laughs> right. And I started looking at the backgrounds of the other people who had consulted for Star Trek in the past as technical consultants. And they had moved into writing and executive producing and show running, you know, at the time, that was really, I I was kind of shocked by that, and I didn't necessarily see how I could end up doing something like that. But now that I'm more involved and I am getting involved and trusted in the writing process and in the creative development of some of these stories, I'm starting to see that, yeah, my, my brain and my approach to things is starting to become more creative and that you do almost pivot into being a writer. And so that's kind of where I see things going now. Yeah, okay. So it's not totally hopeless from here. That's good to know. Well, so I'm I'm also pleased to hear that you do get to contribute science to the creative process, because of course many of our listeners contribute science to the policy making process. And so my original tentative idea and in inviting you on the podcast, apart from this just being good fun and I don't know, reducing my degrees of separation to Patrick Stewart. Um, my original idea was to try and see how many commonalities and analogous experiences there might be between those two worlds. But actually, if I understand what you said earlier, it sounds like you've worked in policy advice too, and indeed science communication and, and some pure research. So I'm interested then in whether you've encountered similar experiences or transferable skills between these different kinds of scientific work. Yeah, I think there's definitely a big crossover, and it's how I've been able to be successful in these fields. There's a few sort of key skills that I think really apply to this. A big thing is the communication ability. I briefly mentioned that when I had started leaving academia and I was getting more into teaching, I was working at science museums. I would say that's probably where I honed most of those skills that I then took into the more professional science advice standpoint, because I would literally spend six or seven hours a day I mean, with my background, they threw me in the space area and was like, just go there until the end of the day. (laughs) Just just talk to people, entertain people, answer questions, do shows, whatever. We trust you, just do your thing. And, um, And so I would spend all day, you know, four or five days a week in the space area of a science museum talking to eight-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 30-year-olds. Like you'd be talking to parents who are just dragging along their kid, you know, who are being dragged along by their kid who is obsessed with black holes at the time and don't have that background themselves. Or, you know, grandparents who are maybe have a scientific background but haven't really kept up on space research. So I would get asked all sorts of questions. And that was where I started to become more comfortable with saying, I don't know started to become more comfortable answering questions that were outside of my field, but 
you know, eventually learning them, looking them up and, and being able, I think, to really understand your audience and be able to read very quickly if they're following you or not. I think that's one of the hardest things is to sit across, have a conversation while you're explaining t- something to people. You want to know the moment you've lost them, not when you get to the end of your explanation. And they're like, yeah, I didn't catch any of that. So, so that was a really big skill for me. And then the other thing that I think applies a little bit more to the creative standpoint than necessarily the policy advice, um, but it's being a positive presence, I think really helps create a good environment for science advising. And this is, I like to joke because in the creative industry, you know, if people are exposed to improv, it's this idea that you yes and your situation. You are given a problem, you're given a question, and you sit, you accept it and you build on top of that instead of negating it. And so when it comes to being asked questions from people who are looking for help, who are looking for ideas, you want to build on what they're saying, even if it's nonsense. I mean, even, you know, taking from the policy standpoint, if they're coming to you with a question of saying like, hey, we want to implement this sort of blue sky thing. And in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, that's that's tough. That's a big stretch. Say like, OK, here's the steps that we would take to get here. And here are going to be those pitfalls. So the expectations are managed, but you're not completely shutting down the conversation, which I think doesn't help you build a relationship because these careers of advising are all about the relationships that you have. Well, now that's great. You touched on a lot of things there that are definitely familiar territory in the science for policy world. Um, Let's spend some time talking about those. So the point about building relationships, I think, is really vital. It's something that comes up a lot and you're absolutely right. It crosses all these boundaries between different fields of basically talking about science what you said about yes and you know (laughs) engaging with people's questions and using them as a starting point to talk about the science reminds me a bit of something rolf hoyer said on this podcast in one of our early episodes so he's now a senior science advisor but he was recalling his time when he was setting up cern the the particle accelerator Ah. and he used to get all kinds of crazy questions i don't maybe you remember it people who were worried that turning on the accelerator might fire up a black hole that would destroy the solar system or um, that it was being sabotaged by time travelers. And he said basically just the same as you, right? That no matter how off base the questions sound, no matter how confident you are that they're just mad, (laughs) you don't say shut up and go home. You engage with them respectfully. It really is. I mean, I think the key is, is that no one wants to feel dumb. And that's the big thing in science communication. When you're talking to, when you're communicating science to other people, it's your job to not make them feel stupid because if you make them feel dumb, then they're going to walk away from that with a negative perception of scientists and of science. And they're not going to be inclined to ask for advice or ask questions in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's a particularly um, acute risk when the science you're talking about is so far from people's ordinary experience, yeah. like, like gravitational waves, for instance. Okay. So so while we're comparing uh, science advice for policy and science advice for TV, I'd like to try and stretch that analogy in some different directions and see how far it goes before it snaps. So here's one try. Okay. Um, Writers have to balance all kinds of constraints, not just science, obviously, but plot and drama, I guess, budget, ratings, um, existing canon. Do you have a feeling for where the science comes in this hierarchy? Do you ever feel like scientific accuracy is squeezed uh, in favor of other constraints? 
It depends on the genre of the show. I think if we're talking about science fiction, that's a very broad term. You know, it's like I always like to joke and this probably won't make a lot. It makes a lot of sense to me because I'm also a heavy metal fan. But if you tell people like you're a fan of heavy metal, if they are also a fan of heavy metal, the next question is like, okay, what genre? There's so much different types of heavy metal out there. And it's the same with science fiction. Science fiction can range from the incredibly hard near future, really rooted in science, heavy technical science fiction, all the way to, you know, space fantasy. (laughs) And 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 space comedy too. I think that's kind of a lot more where where I land sometimes. And so when it comes to where the science falls in the hierarchy of telling these stories, a lot of it has to do with the type of show that they want to write. You know, working in Star Trek right now, I mentioned there's so many shows in, in production. They're all slightly different with the approach that they're taking. You have the shows that like Star Trek Discovery, which is a little bit more classic Star Trek, that they want to be explorers, they want to be problem solvers, they want to be scientists really at their core. And so for the writers and showrunners, they want to make sure that the science that they're injecting into it, but also the scientific mentality really comes across in that show. But then you cross to Lower Decks, and which I believe uh, Europe is going to get access to in January. So enjoy it, everyone, because it's possibly one of my top Star Trek shows of all time. <laughs> um, that is like almost a pure Star Trek comedy. It's an animated adult comedy Star Trek. So in the hierarchy of science, I mean, they're going to do whatever they want. But, you know, I've I get along with the showrunner and the writers pretty well, and they more see the science as like icing on the cake, that if they can put in some cool little science Easter eggs or come up with some really wacky ideas that are rooted in science, they really like that. But they will throw that away immediately if they have a funny joke that has no realm of science involved. Um, And then pivoting again you know there's a kids star trek show that's being developed called star trek prodigy and that's going to be an animated kids show and joint with nickelodeon they're less focused on the hard science and more on being a vision for kids who might go into science so they're less concerned with explaining the technical you know how warp drive works or anything but showing characters who do enjoy science and who are you know, explorers and could inspire future generations. So it's all these like slightly different perspectives on how they want their show to view science. And that's really where that comes in. Yeah. So it sounds like your your role is sometimes not just to answer the hard science questions, I guess, I mean, like the pure science questions, um, but also sometimes to offer your perspective more broadly as a scientist, as in, okay, this is how science works. This is how scientists think. In which case, I don't know, maybe with the kids show, were you able to advise them a bit on things like how young viewers might be introduced to scientific ideas and interested in STEM subjects and that kind of thing, if that was their objective? Yeah, I mean, without going into too many details, I can't wait to share much, much, much more (laughs) once this show airs. But um, yeah, I think that that's something that I was very fortunate to be asked to give input on is that they did ask me for not just my scientific input. And it was, I mean, when I first showed up to their writer's rooms, it was like, okay, sit down. We have you for a day. Here's our laundry list of questions that we've, you know, put aside to ask you. 
that were very, you know, very technical and just making sure that they weren't crazy when it was coming, coming up with all of these. But then it was like, okay, well, tell us about your journey to being a scientist. Like as a kid who was a sci-fi fan who ended up being a scientist, what was your journey like and what did motivate you and what kept you interested in being a scientist when you were, you know, little 10 year old Aaron watching TV. And um, so they were very conscious of making sure that they got that part of it right now. My story is unique, as is most people who who go down that path. But I was just honored that they would consider that at all, you know, um, because I don't think they necessarily had the access to those sort of stories. So I did get to share a lot of my own sort of personal stories that, you know, we'll see. We'll see how much they turn up or not. But <laughs> yeah, sure. it was really cool. And it's yeah, it was that was certainly an aspect of the scientific advising that I hadn't necessarily done to that point, And now. Now we've folded that in. That's really fun because I think if you asked me to guess what the role of a of a TV science advisor would be, I wouldn't think of that stuff. I, I imagined you basically like uh, like Scotty, you know, who works Miracle <laughs> on Demand when Captain Kirk says, okay, I need a way to detect a cloaked warbird, figure it out. And you say, right. I sir, and off you go to figure it out. Right? It's interesting and it's kind of pleasing that there's more depth, if you like, to the science advice role than that. Yeah, it is. Although there are definitely those. I'd say part of my day is I would probably get about two or three emails that are like, you know, this episode urgent in the subject line. And it's just like we need them to, you know, to have two or three things that they ask when they come upon this scene. <laughs> and it's like, OK, I got it. So, yeah, that's that's definitely still part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, Okay, then, then here's another real live issue in the world of science for policy. I, I want to see if it lands for you too. Um, how independent do you feel? Uh, I, 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 I don't want to sound pretentious. I know this is entertainment we're talking about. But still, do you ever feel under pressure to alter your advice to fit with the plot constraints? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, and my brain kind of went in two directions with that question. So... Immediately, I would say, you know, I want to maintain a good relationship. That's that's ultimately the thing. And because there are so many voices, as I'm sure there are, and I know there are with a lot of science policy as well, you'll have the person that you're advising, but they'll be getting input from 30 different directions and sometimes people senior to them who want to take it in a direction. So you can advise it as much as you want, but then when they take it to their bosses, their bosses might come back and say, no, I want this as well. And um, that certainly happens in this world that we will come up with something and then they take it to the higher ups and the higher ups go, nope, we want, we want this cool, spectacular scene and we want it to look like this. And it's like, oh, but that's not, ah. Oh. <laughs> so, but for me, and I think, this has certainly held true across my careers. I think as the advisor, you can't get caught up in that. Your job is to remember who your customer is. You know, in our federal contracting, we refer to that as our customer. But you have to remember who's who you're there to help, not to manage all the other voices. You are there to answer their questions and to help them navigate the situation. And so for me... I always have to remind myself they might be getting a lot of questions, a lot of ideas from different directions, but my job is to help them, that showrunner, 
and to help their job be as easy as possible. I think one of the worst things you can do and a very easy mistake to make is when they are in the weeds with something, they're trying to solve this problem really quickly and you come back with this convoluted, deep, multi-perspective solution. That is not what they need at the time. They need like a yes, no, will this work? Will this won't work? Like, can you sleep at night if we do this? <laughs> not the detailed philosophical nuances of every possible answer. Gotcha, um, right. <laughs> yeah, so that that I think is is really at its core. But then when you kind of ask about the burden and the responsibility there's the part that I probably lose the most sleep on is the fact that it's freaking Star Trek. <laughs> there is that sort of voice in the back of my mind that is like, okay, you have your customer, you have your showrunner, you have the person you're advising, you're trying to help the writers do this right. But also like really don't screw it up because this is over 50 years of iconic science fiction television. <laughs> so so I, I'm sure even though this might become mundane and day-to-day sometimes you remind yourself where you fit in this big context and that can be overwhelming yep i can i can really imagine well in that case then how do you feel when you watch the final show like an episode that you worked on can you sleep at night or do you have to watch with a a pillow over your face (laughs) i i um you know it's so funny because because the entertainment industry is very big and convoluted even though I may be involved in a lot of the process, sometimes it's from concept development to script to dialogue, sometimes even to helping the graphics team, the end product, you know, it's still gone through many iterations of editing of, you know, all of this. So I really don't know what it's going to look like. So there is an element to me watching it through my fingers with my head in my hands and just hoping that it all comes across okay. And, you know, right now, um, Star Trek Discovery is coming out and so very occasionally I'll be watching it with my partner and just pause it and turn to him and just be like did that make sense to you? Do you understand what <laughs> they just said? <laughs> because like I you know because I had to write that I had to explain it and I want to make sure it, it makes sense because I'm so in the weeds with it so thankfully he has to take uh, the brunt of that <laughs> but, but I will say the the greatest honor is um and quite emotionally unbelievable is seeing my name in Star Trek credits. That that hits me every time. Yeah, I bet it does. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about multidisciplinarity. Your background is astrophysics, but then Star Trek, of course, covers a whole wide range of different scientific topics. So what happens when you're asked to advise on something that's really outside your area, like plant biology or, I don't know, time travel or computer science or something? What, how, where do you go then? Yeah, this this happens a lot. And actually, um, time time travel, I've become weirdly versed in. So that one's not too bad for me. But things like plant biology, for sure, I will see something like that. And I will first, my instinct is like, okay, look it up. Like, where did they get that idea from? I will try to reverse engineer where they came up with that Cause I'll, they'll, you know, they'll throw out a technical biology term and I actually have never heard of or seen it, but it's in this context where I'm like, okay, well that sounds scientific. So let me reverse engineer it. And I think the key is once I see where they got that term from is to very quickly try to make sure that in the context that makes sense. Because I think fundamentally, even though it's not my scientific field of expertise, 
I still think like a scientist and I still know how to do research and quickly distill information. And the analogy that I would give for that is like, it's not even really an analogy, but you know, we as scientists understand the difference between preprint publications and once something has been published in a peer reviewed journal and also what journals are a pay to play journal that's not a, a renowned um, publication. A lot of people don't understand that concept. So if I'm looking up something and I see that it looks like they got their idea from like a clickbaity headline that was based on a preprint journal that showed up in the archive, the ARXIV, um, that I have to kind of rein that in a little bit. Even if I don't know the science behind it, even if it's just, I just have to explain like that this might not be as um, as well known. Before I get into that, I do have a colleague, Mah Professor Muhammad Noor. Um, he's the Dean of Natural Sciences at Duke University. And uh, when we have had very complex biology, uh, he's he's my guy. <laughs> he's right. our guy. So we, we actually ended up, we were friends beforehand from the convention circuit, and then we actually independently ended up getting contracted for season three of Discovery. But uh, because he has a very esteemed, very busy day job, he gets called in for the occasional biology question. So there is definitely those people that we know who to call. And sometimes as well... Um, what my job ends up being is knowing who to call and then knowing how to translate their answer for the writers. Because I could very easily just say like, okay, if you want to talk about genetic mutations due to radiation, like this is the world leading expert in that, or here's someone that I know that does research in this, here's their email address, have fun. That's not necessarily going to be helpful. It might be, but what is going to be more helpful is if I reach out to that person, ask them the questions, and more times than not get a very long, very detailed answer with links to many research articles, then I distill that into a half-page response that I can then send to the writer. So it's really about me interpreting what those experts say tailored to what I know those writers need. Um, and so just with that, I think that that's really, really a key role. And uh, what I was going to earlier say about um, Discovery is that in, you know, in season one, Muhammad, he pointed out that they put in that um, that there's this space tardigrade that has horizontal gene transfer that ex uh, can express horizontal gene transfer. And they had pulled that from a very recent publication that had kind of shattered the scientific news that said tardigrades have huge amounts of horizontal gene transfer. I'm not going to pull out any numbers. I'm probably not saying it correctly because, again, <laughs> this is not my field of expertise. Um, but that made headlines. And, you know, the writers were putting this idea of a tardigrade-like species in. And so the fact that they included horizontal gene transfer as part of the story is freaking awesome. And it's really, really cool. What they missed is the retraction of that paper about a year later uh -huh. because these big discoveries make headlines and get across the desks of people who are writers and who aren't scientists. What don't get across the desks are the later retractions. And so that's another big role of us is to understand that process and to try to keep that sort of thing from happening. Now, again, it's a story. It's a tardigrade-like thing. So there's nothing to say that that species can't have 
extreme horizontal gene transfer. And it's still cool that they did it anyway. But it's just a really kind of interesting nuance to how you can fall into these traps without a without a dedicated science advisor. Yeah. And I find it interesting and a bit surprising, maybe, that the writers might care about that. that yeah. They would hire someone like you or like a, a dean of natural sciences to tell them when they've um, stumbled into wobbly science or retracted research because there's no need for them to do that necessarily, right? I mean, writing right. is a creative process. Sci-fi is speculative. They can get their ideas from anywhere they want. I think the commitment to scientific robustness is impressive. I realize in that case, it, the, the realization came too late, but still. Right, exactly. It's like, okay, well, um, whoops, that's what we've got now. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're working with. And so, yeah, again, we're going to yes and that, and that's written into the canon, so let's make it work. Right. And yeah, and every future science advisor on Star Trek is going to roll their eyes at this uh, established, unchangeable canon that tardigrades do horizontal gene transfer. That's the point, though, because Star Trek's been around a long time now in various forms, and unlike fans being what they are a whole load of this canon has built up over the decades and people don't forget and it's not just like things that happened in the show it's a whole load of extremely technical detail i mean there are whole books on this stuff defining how warp drive works and and uh, and how the enterprise computer puts out fires and so on how bound do you feel by the weight of this canon by how things have been done in the past. Do you have to know, as it were, your history as well as your science to do your job? Oh, I feel incredibly bound by the technical canon. You know, these are legacies that particularly uh, Mike Okuda and Rick Sternbach were sort of these key players who developed a lot of the technical things. And I know this is an audio podcast, but if you could see behind me, I have the Star Trek technical manual at my ready hand reach because this is uh, something that is incredibly important to me. Now, how much it actually comes into play is surprisingly not that much because as a Star Trek fan, I've absorbed a lot of this knowledge. So it's like any scientific field. You will have absorbed a lot of stuff. And you kind of know if something has been done or not. And you can do a little bit of digging just to double check your instincts. But you kind of know if they've talked about this before. And so sometimes when we'll be talking about having to repair some aspect of some component of the warp drive, I will kind of do a quick check to see if that component has been mentioned before. But thankfully, those resources are out there. <laughs> so I can do that quick check. And if it hasn't, then that's when I get really excited because now it's like, oh, now we get to establish new canon and my stuff gets to end up in those books in the future. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. I can see the appeal of that for sure. So one thing that's come up indirectly uh, when I've been chatting with other guests, or at least a strong impression I've got from them sometimes, is that a lot of people feel that their role in science and science advice isn't just a, a job, it's a vocation. And I think that's particularly true, actually, of science advisors, that if you're a scientist and you get mixed up in the world of policymaking, you don't usually do it just because it pays the bills, but you do it because you really deeply believe that science and evidence have a role to play in making better policy and so I guess in making the world a better place and I think there's often a similar feeling even among pure researchers that they do it for the love of the subject of course but also because they feel committed to a deeper belief in the value of knowledge and expanding our horizons and so on so I guess I want to ask you also like without putting too much weight on this 
Where do your core allegiances lie? Do you feel like you're fundamentally serving science here or entertainment or both? Oh, that's actually a really, really deep question for me because I had a huge crisis personally when I left academia because as a a woman who's a heavy metal fan and covered in tattoos. And I felt like I had a responsibility to be a mentor and to be a inspiration for future generations of scientists. And I felt like removing myself from the research world and from academia would then remove that ability that I was no longer um, making myself available for future generations to see themselves and to be inspired by my role. Um, that was a completely misguided fear, <laughs> and as I have now learned. and I, But I know people do struggle with it. So I say that to try to assuage anyone who's considering leaving research academia. You do get a lot of pressure, especially if you're an, a member of an unrepresented group, underrepresented group, that it can be a lot of pressure to stay in academia. Um, but no, <laughs> because ultimately you are a scientist and you are a professional scientist and you will always be a professional credentialed scientist. So wherever you go, you can continue to inspire people through those roles. And so when it comes to kind of where I have now seen my role and my passion and my desire for science is going back to actually my core roots of what made me want to become a scientist in the first place. And that was storytelling. And that was telling fictional stories that could then inspire future, future generations to become scientists. And ultimately, I mean, this was staring me in the face the whole time. Like I should have known this from day one, that that's what my job would end up being. But I, it took me a long time to figure that out. And it wasn't really until actually that I was started working on Star Trek Prodigy, the kids show, that I realized like this is where I belong, that I can play a role in telling fictional stories that can still inspire future generations of scientists. And my own personal journey and my own personal stories can actually play a huge role in making that as effective as possible. So I do feel like science is embedded in our core nature as human beings. You know, we, we are born being scientists, wondering what that hand in front of our face is and learning that it's our own hand. You know, that's a core scientific thing. And we get inspired by things like dinosaurs and space and all of these cool things that we get passionate about. And then a lot of people lose that excitement or or decide to take their lives in a different direction. But at the core, that's still a big part of who we are. And so any ability to insert science, even if it's just a goofy sci-fi animated comedy, if we can still remind ourselves that science is good, that evidence is required, that, you know, questioning the world around us is a good thing, I think is hugely important to how we approach our our, our vast universe. <laughs> mm. And, and Gene Roddenberry, who created Star Trek in the first place, was famously optimistic about that idea, right? Yeah. He deliberately wanted to imagine a world where science had basically solved all our problems, that that was the original premise of Star Trek. Do you buy it? Are you that optimistic about what science has to offer? <laughs> uh, at the end of 2020, it's pretty hard to feel optimistic. <laughs> uh about um the role that science plays in our in our world um you know it's funny I, I think a lot of my peers especially those of us who 
understand the scientific process, who understand how exponential curves work, mm-hmm. now, <laughs> who understand, you know, virus spreads, um, have been very frustrated this year. And it has been very in our face how little a lot of people actually care about or understand those things. And so it's very hard to stay optimistic. However, remembering the context of where Star Trek started, which was in the mid to late 1960s, was also a very tumultuous time. And there was a lot of very difficult things going on in our world. And, you know, a lot of it was human made. And... So in some sense, there's a lot of parallels to that. And I think remembering that that's where Gene Roddenberry was starting from, trying to realize that humanity is going to get worse before it can get better, I think is what I find myself reminding myself of. That, um, you know, we're headed down a little bit of a dark path, but you hit rock bottom (laughs) and then you turn around and you invent warp drive and then the Vulcans come and then you get to have Starfleet Academy. So (laughs) we just... We just have to take it one step at a time. But the path I think is clear, right? <laughs> the path is clear, exactly. Um, you know, just remembering that we didn't get warp drive until after World War Three. So just yeah, bear that in mind. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And I'm kind of sad to hear your take on 2020. I mean, nobody is saying it's been a good year. But I wonder really what the narrative will be when we look back on it. I mean, maybe this is a difference of perspective between the two of us because of because of the well because we live in different parts of the world or maybe i've drunk too much of captain picard's (laughs) kool-aid but i think there's a real possibility that we look back on 2020 as the year when there was a global pandemic show which we always knew was coming and weren't ready for but when science science advisors stepped into the spotlight and guided us however imperfectly out of the mess and then gave us the vaccines and you know it's been brutal but but maybe the long-term perspective of history will be a bit less downbeat about how things turned out in the end. Yeah, I think it. I think that path is still ahead of us. And I think that we kind of, I don't think it's a straight line for whether that is going to be how we look back. You know, I hope, I certainly hope it is. And I think it could be. I think it's just how it's all handled and how humanity in the short term decides to reflect on it. Hmm. You know, If I had any sense at all, I would suggest to wrap up our conversation right here because that's a nice, thoughtful final note. But I'm afraid I do have one further question and I can't resist the opportunity to ask it. I guess on the off chance there's anyone still listening at this point who feels that the episode hasn't been indulgent enough yet. Uh, Dr. McDonald, would you get into the transporter? (laughs) I... No. Because of... Until I know how the Heisenberg compensator works, I'm not stepping foot in the transporter. Because at its core, the transporter, and this is from a scientific standpoint, um, you have to know exactly where every single particle of your body is down to the subatomic level if you're going to deconstruct it and reconstruct it somewhere else. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle states that that cannot be true. Quantum mechanics has an uncertainty to it that you can never know exactly where every particle is. Now in Star Trek lore, uh, they solved this brilliantly, and it's a beautiful way for solving science in science fiction. A component of the transporter is the Heisenberg compensator. And in the Star Trek world, we like to say (laughs) around the house, uh, how does the Heisenberg compensator work? Very well. Thanks for asking. (laughs) You don't need to know any more than that. So until I know exactly how the Heisenberg compensator works, you're not getting me near a transporter at all. 
All right. So it's a long, laborious life for you of of sitting in shuttlecraft for yep. weeks while your colleagues beam themselves up and down at will. Yep. I'm fine with that. Yep. I get it. <laughs> Dr. Erin McDonald, it's been a delight. I mean, I always want to thank my guests for the time they dedicate to having a conversation with me. But since you mentioned when we were chatting earlier that the other thing on your to-do list for today is to figure out how time travel works, uh, I'm particularly grateful that you postponed that for a little while. So yeah, thank you very much and happy Christmas. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me and live long and prosper. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.